an investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists, to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we host the United Kingdom's Lord Chris Smith, Baron of Finsbury. He is a remarkably thoughtful and experienced person. Lord Smith is the master of Pembroke College at Cambridge University. He is a former member of Parliament, the former UK Minister for Culture, Media and Sport, and the former chair of the Environmental Agency. Finally, before introducing him, I must tell a personal story. I met Lord Smith when I was about to become a visiting professor at the Judge Business School in Cambridge and a visiting fellow at his college, Pembroke College. As an American unfamiliar with some of the intricacies of British tunnels, I somewhat timidly asked whether I should address him as master for his Pembroke affiliation or Lord for his appointment as life peer. His answer was simple. Chris, he said. So welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to be here. You seem to have crammed several lifetimes of experience into just part of one. Member of Parliament, Culture Minister, Chair of the Environment Agency, Chair of the Advertising Standards Authority, Chair of the Art Fund, Master at Pembroke on the board of the English National Opera. So let me ask, what has enabled you or perhaps driven you to take on all these challenges? What's your origin story? What makes you, you? I, I grew up in the 1960s, and it was a time when we were full of hope and optimism, and we believed that we could change the world through doing things and making arguments and persuading people. And uh, I still sort of believe some of that, but I, I have over a lifetime come to realize that it's a bit more difficult than uh, uh, I perhaps thought then. But I grew up wanting to go and change the world. And that's what drove me into politics. It's what landed me up in um, the regulation of advertising and the uh, protection of the environment and uh, all the other things that I uh, have been involved in. And that motivation uh, to be in public service and by doing so help to make a difference to the world that we all live in, uh, that, that, if there's anything that drives me, that's what drives me. Do you have any insight into yourself as to why that hasn't faded? I ask that admirably because many people of our generation start that way and then it doesn't persist. And what is remarkable, I think, is that it has persisted with you through that lifetime. Um, have you had successes that have fueled you or perhaps failures that have fueled you, or is it just something more innate? 
Oh, many failures along the road. And one of the things, of course, that you have to learn as a lesson of life is that you will fail at some things and you simply have to pick yourself up and learn lessons from that and start all over again. I, I, I suppose the key thing is keeping the idealism alive as the thing you are trying to aim for. Uh, but realizing that it's going to be a very difficult and long and stony road uh, to get there. I remember, for example, when I was uh, Secretary of State for uh, Culture, Media and Sport, one of the things I was determined to do was to restore free admission to all the national museums and galleries in the UK. It took me four years to achieve. I had to persuade a rather reluctant prime minister that it was worth doing. He now talks about it as one of the great achievements of his government. Um, I then had to persuade the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the finance minister, to come up with some extra money. I had to persuade some reluctant museum directors that it was worth doing. I had to go to the European Union to get the VAT rules on tax for a non-business entity changed for the national museums. But we did all of that. And the moment when we were able to make the museums free, I remember there was a, a lovely moment, the Science Museum in London invited me to come and cut a ribbon and throw open the doors on the morning that they opened for free. And uh, we had a lovely little ceremony. About uh, uh, half an hour later, I was wandering around in the foyer of the museum and this young man carrying his little daughter on his shoulders uh, made a beeline towards me. And as he came up to me, he turned to his daughter and he said, I want you to say thank you to this man. It's because of him we're able to be here today. And that was, I think, the moment when I suddenly thought perhaps a career in public life has been worth it after all, because I was able to do something to make a change, to make a real difference to people's lives. And it's still in place, despite uh, a subsequent 11 years of Conservative government. The uh, free admission to museums is so popular, it's so successful, uh, that no one has dared to change it. And it, it took a, a long time to get there, but it, it was worth doing. And that's the sort of thing that uh, does keep you going. Let's move to the present. You were educated, I believe, at both Edinburgh and Cambridge. You also went to the Kennedy School at Harvard. And I know that you keep a sharp eye focused on the United States. What do you think are the roles of the UK and the US in the world today? Is there still any special relationship left between these two, I guess you'd call them historic bastions of Western democracy? And, and does that play any role in the world? I certainly hope that there's a special relationship uh, still there, although I would observe that um, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, is doing his best 
by what he's doing on Northern Ireland, what he's doing around the rest of the world. Uh, he's doing his best to put it in jeopardy. But to me, the very worst decision that the UK has made during the course of the last five years has been the decision about Brexit to leave the European Union. It is already proving to be a complete disaster for the UK's economy and for the UK's standing in the world. And um, the great role that uh, the UK used to be able to play was it was very much a part of the European Union. It was a strong bastion of European cooperation, but it also had special ties to the United States. And that role as a bridge between the United States and Europe was something that Britain was uniquely placed to fill. We spoke the language, we had lots of common inheritance and common traditions and a shared history. And yet we were able to provide an opening into the community of the European Union. That has now gone. And it is very much to my regret that that has gone. And it makes keeping the special relationship in place much more difficult than it was before. As you know, the key audience for this podcast is the finance and business communities. There may be no hotter issue for finance and for investors in particular today than what's the role of the capital markets with regard to climate and other environmental issues, such as biodiversity and deforestation. You are the former head of the Environment Agency. Cambridge University relatively recently made headlines by divesting from fossil fuel shares of stock. And at Pembroke College specifically, there is a long history of economists looking at the world. John Maynard Keynes was Pembroke's first head of economics. So while it is not your specific discipline, I will still ask, what do you think the proper role is for investors with regard to climate change? I'd say two things to that. The first is responsibility, just as all other members of society have a responsibility, to do whatever we can to address the looming problem of, of climate change. And uh, that means um, thinking intelligently about where we invest, the influence that we try and exercise through the decision to invest in particular equities. The other thing, though, I would say is one of the things that any investor has to bear in mind is that over the course of the next 30 or 40 years, we don't know yet precisely what the timescale will be, but over the course of that period, we will transition as a world from a world almost totally dependent on oil and gas and coal into a world that looks, I fervently hope, looks very different from that. So any investor looking at what to invest in has to bear in mind that that is the long-term trajectory. 
and uh, that should influence decisions about where to direct investment and how to deploy funds. I would also say there's a lot of the world of business now uh, that is becoming really uh, keen on thinking about what is known as the ESG consequences of business operations, environmental, social and governance. On the whole, those companies that have taken ESG seriously have prospered rather more and rather better than those companies that have not taken ESG seriously. And uh, that also should be borne in mind by investors. It may actually make rather good business sense to think about the environment and biodiversity and climate change when considering the fortunes of particular companies. One of the criticisms of ESG and sustainability investing has come recently that all this is something of window dressing that without government action and government regulation, we can't get there from here. I don't agree with that particularly, but clearly government has a role to play and has been perhaps lagging the private sector in some ways in this. Can, can you explain from your point of view as a former minister, as a former member of government, and as a former head of the environment agency, what you think government can do or should do in the relatively near future around these issues? Government regulation is absolutely crucial as part of the picture. Now, you're right, I think, to observe that in many countries, governments are lagging behind the private sector and certainly lagging behind civil society in the whole range of non-governmental civil society organizations. Governments are lagging far too much on this. One of the uh, things that's been very obvious over the course of the last two or three years is there's been a step change in public acknowledgement and understanding of the reality of climate change. Five, seven years ago, there were lots of climate deniers. There were people saying, well, we think something may be happening, but we're not sure exactly what it is. We're not sure if human activity is the cause. The sense of public opinion was mixed. I think now the sense of public opinion is overwhelming that uh, climate change is happening. Floods, droughts, fires, they are becoming increasingly common. And in addition to all of that, they believe that governments ought to take some action in order to address it. Now, that public understanding is something that the world of business on the whole gets, understands, knows that that will affect customer decisions about the purchase of their products. And that's why industry and business are changing so rapidly. I very much hope that governments begin to understand their people 
are wanting them to move on this and respond accordingly. Let me ask a philosophic question that relates to being the master of Pembroke. At Pembroke, one of the great traditions is high table. When academics gather for meals, they sit next to whoever comes in before or after. The result is that, for instance, a professor studying the impact of environment on the DNA of invertebrates finds common ground with a French literature scholar or with someone who guided the rollout of broadband internet across the UK. So that mealtime actually creates an important structure that encourages, I would call them interdisciplinary epiphanies as scholars in one discipline learn from others. And that resonates with me. In fact, it's the essential value proposition of this podcast is that the finance professionals and business people can learn from other disciplines. But I have to say it's not a value proposition shared by everyone. And the trend seems to be specialization, particularly in finance. For instance, in academia and finance, if a junior finance faculty member publishes in a management journal as opposed to a finance journal, it's ignored by the tenure committee at best and possibly viewed as negative. And being interdisciplinary is frowned upon and retards the potential of getting tenure. So let me ask, uh, and the reason people give is that, well, there's so much to do, we just need to be deeper and deeper. So let me ask a big picture philosophic question. Have we reached the point where knowledge, technology, the information explosion requires a specialist-led society, or does devaluing the contribution of generalists have negative impacts on society as we increasingly become siloed? Big question. The value, as you have rather eloquently put it there, the value of interdisciplinarity, where uh, people from different backgrounds, different disciplines, different subjects come together is enormous. And uh, a field like the study of climate change is an absolutely key example, example of that. In Pembroke, we have a professor of geography who is one of the country's uh, leading experts on the human geography of climate change. We have a professor of chemistry who is um, probably the world's uh, expert on the development of battery technologies and their application to the storage of renewable electricity. We have uh, a professor who is uh, an expert on environmental history and the way in which environmentalism has uh, grown and developed across the last uh, a couple of centuries. We have a fellow who has a profound understanding of the poetry of Ted Hughes and its understanding of the nature of rivers and fishing and impact that environmental change can have on all of that. And we have a zoologist who is an expert on the cuckoo and what happens with bird populations across the world. Now, all of these are from totally different disciplines, but getting them all together to discuss 
what is happening with a changing climate, what the impacts are, whether it's for uh, biodiversity or birds or fish or renewable technologies or our human understanding of it, uh, getting them together to discuss that is rather important. So I hope the answer to your question is that we aren't becoming increasingly siloed and now deep investigation into a small subject is really important. Just doing that and not understanding the context within which that sits is diminishes the importance and relevance of the work that's being done. I would add one other thing, and that is that I think one of the impacts of the growth of technology, especially the growth of social media, is that many people tend nowadays to exist in a silo. They only see views, information, thoughts from people who already agree with them. And being in a place where you can contest ideas, you can have awkward questions being asked, you can hear different views, is something that far too few people have. Now, a university ought surely to be a place where you do get that contesting of views, that debate between different ideas, uh, being open to knowledge from places that you didn't understand before. That sort of uh, process of discovery through uh, university study and research is hugely important because if we lose that, we end up with a completely compartmentalized world. Let's go back to the beginning of this conversation. We were talking about passion and enabling you to be who you are and to have achieved the things you've done. So what's exciting to you today? What are you doing that you think will be the next big thing in your world? Well, I, I have just very recently taken up a, a position on the board of English National Opera. And although I was on the board of the National Theatre for eight years, I was chairman of the Donmar Warehouse uh, Theatre for something like 12 years. This is the first time I've been on the board of an opera company. And I have to say it's great fun. And now that theatres are reopened and uh, opera is, is taking place once again in London, it's a real delight to be part of all of that. On top of, uh, of having said that, one of the things I thought when I took up the role of Master of Pembroke uh, six years ago was that there would be time to read, to think, to write, to reflect. And I just haven't had time since then. So at some point, I do want to perhaps take a step back, sit down and put some thoughts uh, down on paper, do some writing, do a lot more reading, and find an, an intellectual rather than an administrative life once again. Let me just follow up with a quick question then. What are you reading right now? 
I've uh, just recently been reading a rather wonderful book by Doris Kearns Goodwin, the uh, uh, historian. She's done work on Theodore Roosevelt, on Franklin Roosevelt, on Lyndon Johnson, on Abraham Lincoln. And she wrote a wonderful book about Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt through the 1930s and into the Second World War, about his life as president, their life in the White House. And one of the fascinating things uh, uh, about this, Franklin Roosevelt is one of my heroes. He made a huge and significant difference to millions and millions of Americans. Um, But what you find as you read what was happening day by day, week by week, through his administration, was he was doing deals, he was making compromises, he was settling for half of what he wanted because it was better than getting nothing at all. He was weaving and compromising his way through the nasty, messy business of being in government. And it's an absolutely object lesson in keeping your vision firmly in front of you, but knowing that you are going to have to tack and trim and uh, find uh, ways of accommodating other people on the way to getting there. A very, very good lesson in the practical stuff of running a government or being a politician. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Outside In, John Lukumnik, and our guest has been Lord Chris Smith, Baron of Finsbury, and the Master of Pembroke College, Cambridge University. Chris, as you've heard, is one of the best informed and thoughtful people I know, and it's been an absolute pleasure chatting today. Almost as much intellectual fun, I would hope, as High Table at Pembroke. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, or we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.